Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. The world currently seems to be full of self-styled strongman leaders. There's Vladimir Putin in Russia, Xi Jinping in China, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, and Donald Trump in the United States. But one strongman who seems to get relatively little attention is the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who's universally known as AMLO. Unlike many of the other strongmen, he's a left-wing leader who's declared war on neoliberalism. And in this edition, I'll be taking a closer look at the AMLO phenomenon with Jude Weber, the FT's Mexico and Central America correspondent. Honorable Congreso, Pueblo de Mexico. On December the 1st, 2018, a new Mexican president was sworn into office. After two near misses in previous presidential elections, President López Obrador finally made it to the top of Mexican politics, with a pledge to reverse what he regards as many decades of corruption and inequality. But AMLO's assault on neoliberalism is taking place under very difficult circumstances. The most left-wing Mexican president in generations is having to deal with the most right-wing American president in modern times. We're going to have strong, incredible borders. And people are going to come into our country, but they're going to come into our country legally. They're going to come in legally. They make all of this money and they do absolutely nothing to stop people from going through Mexico, from Honduras and all these other countries. The caravan, all of this. AMLO's visit to the Trump White House in July felt more than a little uncomfortable. Hemos recibido de usted comprensión. He said that Mexico received understanding and respect from President Trump. Like leaders all over the world, the Mexican president is also having to cope with the coronavirus. And sadly, Mexico has been particularly hard hit. More than 70,000 Mexicans have died from the virus, the fourth highest number of deaths in the world after the US, Brazil and India. Amidst all the economic and health difficulties caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, AMLO is not forgetting his assault on Mexico's recent past. On the contrary, he suggested that five of his recent predecessors could be put on trial if the public voted for such a move in a referendum. AMLO's political foes are very alarmed by that kind of tactic, suggesting it's an assault on democracy. Others see it as a clear effort to distract attention from a health and economic emergency. So when I got Jude Weber on the line from Mexico City, I started by asking her what she made of AMLO's suggestion of the mass prosecution of former Mexican presidents. It's not actually every single president that's come before him. These are presidents between 1988 and 2018. This is what he calls the neoliberal period. And so he says that their policies were corrupt and fostered inequality and and, uh, and many other calamities, as he put it the other day. So what he's doing is... He, he wants the people to decide in true populist style. 
He wants the people to have their say about this. So he wants to have a, a referendum. So what he's done is he's taken this to um, Congress. Congress has to send it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has to rule on whether or not it's constitutional. Um, they will probably rule that it is not. And so the question then is what AMLO does next. Will he insist on going ahead with a people's poll that the Supreme Court hasn't signed off on? Or will he just quietly, you know, drop it? A lot of people think that many of the things that AMLO does, there's a big element of distraction and diversion. And this is one of them. I mean, you've got a COVID situation that's sort of somewhat not under control, let's say. Um, and an economy that's in very, very poor shape. So this is a wonderful diversion that gets people talking about this. He is also interested in it because for him, it's a way of, we have midterm elections next June. And so for him, it's a way of making sure that he personally is on the ballot next year. And he thinks that that will help his party's chances. And you mentioned this idea that he might need a, a populist distraction. Mexico generally deemed to be having a very bad pandemic. It's not been great for anyone. But why has it gone particularly badly in Mexico? Has it gone particularly badly? It has gone particularly badly in Mexico because we're only starting to get partial official excess death figures, which point to, you know, what various studies of people who've combed through the death records um, have been saying for some time, which is that the, the actual death rate is probably three times higher than the government's admitting because the government has been testing very, very, very little. So really, you have to go to hospital, you have to be admitted to hospital, and you have to be very severe before you can get tested. And so that massages the numbers to some extent, makes them a little bit more palatable, even though we're, you know, they're still very high. Um, so even on the official numbers, Mexico has, I think, the fourth highest death toll in absolute terms. On the economic side, there have been no stimuli for small businesses. Really, only very, very tiny businesses have had any kind of help at all. So economically and health-wise, it's been quite a bad pandemic here. In Mexico, you have sort of 50% of people who work in the informal sector who can't afford to take the day off. So the government's been very sort of, uh, in, in contrast to countries in Central America, for example, and other countries in Latin America, they've been very, um, very lax about enforcing any kind of, you know, forced lockdown because AMLO, that doesn't sit well with AMLO's style either. He wants the people to do the right thing without the government having to coerce them. You mentioned the, the economy. I mean, is there, as you, as you said, there are a lot of people living close to the breadline in, in Mexico. So are you worried about mass hunger, mass unemployment? There's already been a lot of unemployment under COVID. Basically, in April, the first real month of the lockdown, 11 million people left the workforce. Most of these were people who were in the informal sector because formal jobs have contracted by about a million jobs. Since then, we've seen a couple of trends. One is that formal job creation has started to recover. I mean, we're still, I think, 800,000 jobs down on the year. So, I mean, it's recovering, but slowly. Informal job creation is rising faster than formal job creation. Several million have gone back to work of those 11 million who dropped out of the workforce in, in April. But we've still, we've still got a lot of, you know, several million people who are, who are not employed anymore and, and not looking for work. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a sort of a structural problem. You know, is this going to lead to riots and, you know, and disturbances? At the moment, I think people think it's a risk, but but one that isn't necessarily going to materialise. 
But it's a very tricky situation. And there's a government agency which is which is responsible for measuring the progress of social development programs. And they warned earlier on in the year that 11 million people could be pushed into extreme poverty because of COVID. So this is, you know, this is a big risk, I'd say, and, and one that we certainly haven't seen the end of yet. And I mean, AMLO's reaction has been unorthodox in the sense that it, it seems to be cutting spending rather than as in... Um you know, the UK or a lot of countries around the world most really trying to have a big economic stimulus. Why is that? Is that simply because Mexico doesn't have the money or is it something to do with his whole approach to government? It's both. Um, So Amla was once described to me by an analyst here, and I think it's a very good description of him. He's a shopkeeper's son. And so he's not a sort of a sophisticated financial thinker. He's the kind of person who believes for personal finances as well as for state finances, that it's sort of one penny in, one penny out. So he believes that in times when uh, the economy is not growing and, and Mexico was in recession even before COVID, he believes that it's the government's duty to tighten its belt. And this feeds into his, not just his his sort of viewpoint um, of how to run an economy, but it's all part of his anti-corruption drive. This has been his, um, his insignia battle, if you like, um, Every other government before him was corrupt. He's not, he's honest, and he's going to root out the excesses in government. So for him, having a lean, cheap government is more, he sees it as, you know, as more honest um, in a country where, you know, half the population nearly is poor and and lives in poverty. And therefore he, it's fairly unshakable, his faith in this, this is the right way to do things. He was very scarred by bailouts in the 90s of banks called the Fobat Proa. And he all the time says, we can't pile on debt that future generations will have to pay for. He doesn't want a repeat of this program of the bailed out private debts and turned them into public debts. And how's his popularity holding up? I mean, given that there are hard times and so on, I mean, he is a populist. Is, is he still popular? He is still popular. If you compare to the start of his presidency when he was on 80%, 70%, I mean, it's come down considerably. He's now on sort of 52, 54, but he's recovering. And, and I think part of part of that is because there isn't really much alternative. The other political parties are very dead, you know, and, and, and people, if you look at the polls, it's quite interesting that people think their own personal finances, their own personal family economy is going to do worse in the next year. But they think he's been handling COVID relatively well. They sometimes think he's handling the economy not too well, and they don't think he's handling security very well. But overall, they still are prepared to give him the benefit of the doubt. That's the populist touch. Yeah. You mentioned that he portrays all his predecessors, or at least the Mexican system before him, as corrupt. But there have been the beginnings of corruption allegations around his family. I mean... uh, without wishing to put you on the spot too much, I mean, how credible are those allegations and have they done him any damage? They have not done him as much damage as you, as you might imagine. What we've seen in the last few weeks is some videos that were leaked. They're videos that are five years old. And in it, you see his brother, who was one of the political operators in the south of Mexico, receiving envelopes and bags, paper bags of cash from somebody who went on to be a senior official in Mexico's government, but at the time was a consultant for the government of Chiapas, one of the states in the South. Basically what Amlo has said, and it's fairly sort of beggar's belief, but basically what he said is, this isn't corruption because these were contributions 
for people who were supporting his cause, so for example, paying for petrol for people to get to rallies and things like that. And the amount of money that we're talking about is nothing compared to other corruption allegations. And we've got, as a counterpoint to this, we've also recently had the leaked deposition of the former head of the state energy company, Pemex, in which he talks about giving bribes, receiving bribes to buy political support for energy reform. So AMLO is trying to put the two together and say, well, this is how bad the previous government was and look how egregious they were. There, There does seem to be a very clear contrast that, you know, real corruption allegations, real serious ones are for his political opponents. I mean, obviously, Latin America as a whole has has a series of left populists over the years. You know, Chavez in in Venezuela was the most kind of internationally renowned for a while. Mexico's a larger country, a G20 member. I mean, how does AMLO figure on the world stage? this, This argument that he represents the backlash against neoliberalism, in a way, might resonate elsewhere. Uh, does does he want to create a kind of persona for himself internationally in the way that a Chavez or a Castro did? No, I mean, he, he really doesn't care very much about foreign policy. In almost two years in office, he's made one trip abroad, and that was to see uh, Donald Trump at the start of July. But apart from that, I mean, his, his oft-repeated mantra is that the best foreign policy is domestic policy, and he thinks that he has so much to do at home It's also quite interesting, you know, if you compare how he was at the White House where he was reading prepared speech and he was very much second fiddle to how he is in his morning press conferences where, you know, he's top dog and he has the stage and he controls the narrative. It's so much more difficult for him to do that on the international stage. I think he's much happier domestically. So at the moment, when G20 leaders get together to talk about things like vaccines, um, he likes to be the one sort of saying, yes, we must make sure that all poor countries get this and that, you know, it's universal and free and all the rest of it. He wants to be a champion in that respect. But his, you know, his foreign ambitions don't seem to go much further than that. Is there any kind of rivalry then ideologically with the other possibly higher profile populist in Latin America who's a right populist, who's Jair Bolsonaro? Because it struck me that there's kind of a, sometimes even without an ideological element, a sort of Mexican-Brazilian struggle to be the the voice of of the, of the region. Is, is there any face-off with Bolsonaro or just a contrast uh, in their forms of populism? Um, he doesn't really get involved very much with Brazil. The extent of his interest in foreign affairs is one way. It's north. You know, it's to do with the relationship with the US. And in the rest of Latin America, he has a close relationship with Alberto Fernandez in Argentina and that's really it. And, you know, he doesn't sort of get involved with Brazil at all. You know, he, he's obviously focused on, on COVID and the battle against neoliberalism as he sees it. What about the battle against the drugs cartels, which has been such a defining thing for, for Mexico over decades? How's it going? I mean, the numbers the numbers went up and then they went down a bit and there are very small movements. What AMLO wants to be able to say, his narrative is that we have reduced crime because of his approach, which is to create a, a brand new police force, uh, which is mostly actually made up of military officials, and to deploy that across the country. I mean, really, there's been no massive change. I mean, you might see a slight uptick or a slight fall, but really, it's not like we've seen a turning point in this. Are there still massacres? Yes. And most of the other crimes, 
robberies, burglaries, car theft, a lot of these have come down. But these high-impact crimes with drug cartels are, are, you know, very sticky, very hard to deal with. And his policy isn't very clear. On the one hand, he says he's not continuing the kingpin strategy of his predecessors, where you go after, you know, the El Chapo Guzman kind of person, the figurehead, the kingpin at the top of um, the organisation. But in practice and under pressure from the US, that is what he's doing. And so, you know, we're not we're not really seeing any change in terms of the strategy. There was a lot of excitement and interest around the world when, when he got in because he, by his own accounts, represented such a break with the past. Is it possible to arrive at even a provisional verdict on the AMLO years yet? Or do you think we're going to have to wait a while? I mean, you know, AMLO treats us not just to one State of the Nation speech a year, but like four. He does one every quarter now. And so, you know, he'll trot out all of his many achievements. But I think they're not yet definitive or lasting. I mean, and, and he keeps on coming out with things that are not very credible. For example, this year he says he's going to create two million new jobs. Well, you know, he's counting in that, some of his social programmes. You know, has he improved the lives of poor people to some extent? Yes, he's handing out a lot more state money. He also said that Pemex, the state oil company, would be, that Mexico would, the government would invest in in Pemex for the first half of his presidency so that in the second half of the presidency, Pemex would be the lever of national development. Well, that's completely not going to happen. In terms of the economy, I mean... COVID there is a handy distraction from the fact that Mexico was doing badly even before COVID. Um, you know, in his first year in office, he actually made the, made the economy contract. You know, Mexico is still heading for one of the biggest, if not the biggest, crashes in the region, probably one of the slowest recoveries. So I think it's, I think it's a little bit early to say, you know, mixed bag, but more negative than positive. And so conversely, I mean, a lot of people when they hear the phrase left populism in the context of Latin America, are frightened and think, actually, that's sometimes been the prelude to economic collapse or even the rollback of democracy, authoritarianism. Do we know enough yet to say, well, those fears are unfounded? He's not your typical leftist populist. He doesn't like to spend. So he's actually very, personally, very conservative. So that sort of stands him apart. But he also has this authoritarian streak he has a, a news conference every single morning at 7am that lasts for a couple of hours. And, um, and he sees this as informing the people. But it's, as far as he's concerned, it's a one-way street. What the government gives you is information. What anybody else peddles is lies or propaganda or not true. Or, you know. So I think there's a very clear authoritarian street, which we might be able to associate with past populists. But, but economically, he's quite different. So he's a very rare animal. OK, well, Drew, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. That was Jude Weber in Mexico City, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. I do hope you'll be able to join us again next week. You can find the show in all the usual podcast apps. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. 
Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.